0: The development of Marxism is uneven. In some cases, it surges forward, then it fades. Often when it fades, the people who don't like it imagine it's disappeared, only to reappear once again, because it's a kind of shadow of capitalism. It's capitalism's most profound criticism. And so it lasts and revitalizes itself, much as capitalism does. It's kind of the shadow.
1: This is the story of a political pundit who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it. Gives the middle finger to authority and says,
2: kiss my ass. But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast. Just what the world be. Another basic white
1: guy who started a podcast. But it's fun because he curses. I'm fucking the- In part one of our series, we set the table for a lengthy discussion about one of the most amorphous political, economic, and social concepts in history. To illustrate this, we began with the words of our audience, whom we asked to describe socialism as succinctly as possible. The answers were as diverse as they were thoughtful, and it truly set the tone for the series. We offered some of the more dubious modern claims about socialist theory from mainstream mouthpieces, talked about the importance of Bernie Sanders in normalizing concepts associated with modern socialism in the United States, and introduced some of the key concepts and vocabulary most commonly used in socialist economic theory. Then, in part two, we went back to the origins of socialist theory by looking at the bridge between the Enlightenment period and the modern era with philosophers such as Cesar Beccaria and Jeremy Bentham, who in turn laid the groundwork for what would become socialist theory. This is where we introduced three men considered by some to be the progenitors of socialism, Saint-Simon, Fourier, and Owen. My biggest takeaway from revisiting this period in history is just how profound their ideas were in a period when humanity was emerging from the feudal structures that dominated European culture for centuries. And I should point out that most of our discussions do indeed center around the European experience with socialism, though we will cover other expressions of parallel thinking in other cultures and periods throughout history. But the concepts that we wrestle with today are most often associated with European philosophers and the influence they had on the world. So that's what we've concerned ourselves with for the most part. So if part two described the foundational period, we're heading into what I'm calling the critique period of socialism. The critique period is a relatively short period of time and we're actually not going to get through all of it today, but it's perhaps the most essential period to understand. The relevant philosophical period associated with Saint-Simon, Fourier, and Owen is the first part of the 19th century, but as we'll see, there's a good deal of overlap between their productive years and what we're about to cover. I've chosen to bookend the foundational period and the critique period with two important events that relate to manifestations of socialist theory. Robert Owen's New Harmony experiment in 1825 that we covered in the last episode and the Paris Commune in 1871. Now, importantly, we're not going to get to the Paris Commune today, but we are going to go pretty much right up into the period and cover two main philosophers that were most important in this time. It's impossible to overstate the importance of these years and the enduring influence of the philosophers most associated with this period, each of whom builds on the concepts of our founding trio and, in some cases, collaborate with them. In terms of the nomenclature, please know that these aren't formal periods or names that you're going to find associated in any texts. It's a shorthand for how I've personally come to understand the evolution of socialism. I call it the critique period for a couple of reasons. First off is that the philosophers we're going to cover are primarily offering a critique of capitalism and striving toward the development of a general system theory that can be applied in political, social, and economic realms. During this time, We witness both great collaboration and disagreement among the leading philosophers striving to create these systems and wind up exiting this period with several expressions, most notably utilitarianism, socialism, and anarchism. There's a ton of overlap between them, and each will ultimately spawn scores of new doctrinal tributaries. The other reason to consider this more of a critique period is that these theories are still in development. They're responding to both the foundational theories and unfolding realities of a maturing capitalist society but they haven't yet reached the application phase or what we're going to call the praxis phase to borrow from marx that's what we'll cover next from the paris commune through the russian revolution so like i said we're actually going to end this episode right before the paris commune of 1871 because in so many ways the inflection point in european history and socialism as a burgeoning doctrine is the year 1870, one of the most pivotal years in modern history. For the American UNFTR audience, imagine what 1945 is to American imperialism, 1968 is to the civil rights movement, or 2001 is to civil liberties, all crammed together in a single momentous year. Truly fascinating stuff. In terms of the protagonists, as expansive as this era is, I'm gonna limit our discussion to four main philosophers. A few words on this approach before we begin part three in earnest. We're going to cover the works of John Stuart Mill and Karl Marx. Well, it's about fucking time. I know. So Mill and Marx will kick off the critique phase, but two other massively influential theorists, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon and Mikhail Bakunin, will kick off part four and serve as our bridge from the critique to the praxis period. Now, students of Marxism, socialism, anarchism, or history in general, might find some of my omissions a bit startling. But it would be impossible to fully explore the voluminous literature and philosophers whose work contributed so much to the conversation. So I narrowed it down to these four for reasons that will hopefully make sense as we move forward. But part four will also introduce us to a slew of other big names. Briefly, I believe that in totality, Mill, Marx, Proudhon, and Bakunin represent the most significant and enduring contributions to our understanding of socialism and challenged establishment thinking in a way that altered the course of history. And in many ways, where they diverged wound up being more important and instructive than where they were aligned. Because after this period, socialist theory would splinter into multiple disciplines, much like major religions of the world did throughout history. And in the truest actualization of dialectical materialism, this brief period is a study of both the material influence of philosophers upon the world and the world upon them. In this exchange, these four challenge the foundations of modern society, culture, government, religion, and morality in such a manner that we feel the resonance of their words to this very day.
2: And fucking the Republic is brought to you by overcaffeinated members: Alphine and Flash, Asshole, Bree X, Cindy S, David MJ, Goat, G. Wookie of Ohio, Eric Wagner 101, Joa, G, Marco F, Maria from PR, Matthew and Michelle H.
0: Chapter 6: Revolutionary Conditions.
2: In the beginning of the 19th century, the European continent was convulsing with new political, spiritual, and social energy. The trio of Saint-Simon, Fourier, and Owen set the world's collective imagination on fire, and new theorists were poised to build on their proposals for how to organize a new world.
1: Since we're choosing 1825 and the collapse of Owen's American New Harmony experiment as our jumping off point, it's important to get a feel for the times. So before we unpack the theories of our main characters today, let's talk about the circumstances in which they were writing as intellectual heirs to the founders of socialist thought. As I mentioned, there's a good deal of overlap between our theorists, and in many cases, they were friends, sometimes enemies, and even collaborators. For context, Beccaria and Bentham were born in 1738 and 1748, respectively. Saint Simone, Hegel, Owen, and Fourier were born about a half a generation later, just enough time to soak in the lessons of these founders and read their work in real time in their formative years. The philosophers in the critique period were all born after the turn of the century and were most active from New Harmony through our 1870 ending point, with the exception of Proudhon, who died in 1865, but was incredibly influential up until that point and perhaps even more so thereafter. What Mill, Proudhon, Bakunin, and Marx were experiencing during these years is so important because European life was advancing at a revolutionary pace unmatched in recorded history. For one thing, the population of Europe doubled in the 19th century from 200 million to 400 million thanks to advances in industrial agriculture and the widespread use of coal, among other factors. These inventions facilitated industrialization on a colossal scale and contributed to the seismic changes in class structures, the nature of labor, urbanization, transportation, and the development of international trade. And it should be noted that this growth in population occurred in spite of historic European migration to America and other destinations. Of course, not all Europe developed in lockstep. There were surges and depressions, shifting power dynamics, wars, famines you know, all of the normal events that punctuate the course of history. So as a practical matter, I'm gonna talk in generalizations, but to be clear, political, industrial, and social developments varied dramatically from, let's say, England to Italy, Russia to France, and so on. But on the whole, what our theorists were observing was nonetheless extraordinary, and they were able to connect several dots between these nations when committing their observations to the page. In order to stay really focused, I'm not going to cover major geopolitical or religious changes, though they certainly contribute to the evolving social landscape. For our purposes, there are a handful of critical innovations that ultimately impact the social and economic elements of socialism because they facilitated growth that would ultimately challenge the traditional political and religious structures that dominated European culture for centuries prior. Perhaps the most significant
0: ingredient in large-scale economic growth, beyond technological innovations, was something we largely take for granted—private property and its associated legal protections. English common law and the Napoleonic Codes would set the template for most of the developed world in terms of property rights and help usher in a slew of economic innovations in banking as a result.
2: Property could be pledged. From this tangible asset, one could build through leverage, and so long as the newly formed codes protected this underlying asset— One could also then take risks and take advantage of yet another innovation the shareholder
1: private property pledged to a banking institution opened the burgeoning petty and hot bourgeoisie to the capital markets and allowed them to create corporate structures that could also invite capital from outside shareholders if you've ever wondered what the marxist obsession with the concept of private property is all about this is it serfs and peasants didn't possess land or assets, and were therefore left behind in the industrial fervor. But from the peasant class, there emerged a new class of laborer, consigned to working in urban factories and trading one form of serfdom for another. This is the economic liberalism that Adam Smith envisaged, the innovations that Jeremy Bentham was reacting to, the very real circumstances that moved from the theoretical to the tangible. And it was the very real effects of economic liberalism that Marx, Mill, Proudhon, and Bakunin saw unfolding in front of their eyes, often
3: to their horror. It was a town of red brick, or of brick that would have been red if the smoke and ashes had allowed it. But as matters stood, it was a town of unnatural red and black, like the painted face of a savage. It was a town of machinery and tall chimneys, out of which interminable serpents of smoke trailed themselves forever and ever, and never got uncoiled. It had a black canal and a river that ran purple, with ill-smelling dye and vast piles of buildings full of windows, where there was a rattling and trembling all day long, and where the piston of the steam engine worked monotonously up and down, like the head of an elephant, in a state of melancholy madness. It contained several large streets, all very like one another, and many small streets, still more like one another, inhabited by people equally like one another who all went in and out the same hours with the same sound upon the same pavements to do the same work and to whom every day was the same as yesterday and tomorrow and every year the counterpart. Of the last and the next. This passage is from Charles
1: Dickens' introduction to hard times in 1859. Few described the soot and grime as vividly as Dickens. The cultural impact of such descriptions were as profound in Europe as Jacob Reese's tenement photographs or Upton Sinclair's fiction in America at the turn of the twentieth century. Against this backdrop, our theorists chronicled the emergence of the new working class, subjected to horrific conditions in factories and urban hellscapes and experiencing the underbelly of capitalism. The new form of serfdom was called wage slavery. Hundreds of thousands of able-bodied working men moved from the fields to factories within a generation. And as the capitalists thrived, they searched for ways to increase profits and productivity leading to yet another devastating development that sent children and women into the factories, sometimes alongside the men, and sometimes in place of them.
2: The economic dislocation of this newly formed labor class was horrifying. But in this, our philosophers saw potential. The potential to form a new center of political and economic power in the hands of the working class. Without the laborer, the factories could not run, and the new working class was more literate than the peasant laborers just a generation or two before them.
0: The working class was a tinderbox, ready to explode at any moment because the industrial economy differed from the sleepy agrarian economy. It was subject to boom and bust cycles, shocks that often occurred with devastating
1: frequency over a matter of a few short years. So in short, the risks and stakes were so much higher for the new working class than even the peasant class that had come before. This modern economic dislocation was wholly unnatural, brought about by the artificial forces of capitalism as opposed to the natural occurrences that plagued feudal economies of the past. Sure, droughts, famines, and diseases had devastating effects on feudal economic systems, but everyone experienced them. They were indiscriminate. On the contrary, in the early stages of capitalist industrialization, the bourgeoisie was far more insulated from periodic shocks due to the nature of capital markets, assets, and private property protections. For this, let's bring in one of our protagonists to explain the risk differential between the new laborers and the capitalist class. Writing at the time of Dickens, here's Mikhail Bakunin from an article titled The Capitalist System, believed to be written sometime in the late 1840s. Quote, but the capitalist, the business owner, runs risks, they say, while the worker risks nothing. This is not true because when seen from his side, all the disadvantages are on the part of the worker. The business owner can conduct his affairs poorly. He can be wiped out in a bad deal or be a victim of a commercial crisis or by an unforeseen catastrophe. In a word, he can ruin himself. This is true. But does ruin mean from the bourgeois point of view to be reduced to the same level of misery as those who die of hunger or to be forced among the ranks of the common laborers? This so rarely happens that we might as well say never. Afterwards, it is rare that the capitalist does not retain something, despite the appearance of ruin. Nowadays, all bankruptcies are more or less fraudulent. But if absolutely nothing is saved, then there are always family ties and social relations who, with help from the business skills learned which they pass to their children, permit them to get positions for themselves and their children in the higher ranks of labor, in management. To be a state functionary, to be an executive in a commercial or industrial business, to end up, although dependent, with an income superior to what they paid their former workers, end quote. Today, Bakunin is recognized as one of the fathers of anarchism, but he's also considered one of the most influential political and economic theorists of all time, who offered several important contributions to socialist theory and challenged many of Marx's most significant assumptions— and with that, let's fully bring our philosophers into the conversation to eavesdrop on the most important conversations in the development of socialism.
2: UNFTR is also sponsored by overcaffeinated members Nathan E., Nathan Sirst, Nettie Hugger1, Pete M., Rob Nasby, Rodrigo G., Ryan F., Sultan, Terry C., the Younger PDX Squatch, Video Eng Alex, W. Jeremy D., and the Memory of Nettie McGee.
3: Chapter 7. Marx and Mill. The materialist doctrine, that humans are the product of circumstances and education, and that changed humans are thus the product of changed circumstances and education, forgets that circumstances are changed by humans, and that the educator himself must be educated. It must therefore split society into two parts of which one is elevated above society. For example, in Robert Owen, the convergence of the changing of circumstances and of human action can only be understood and comprehended rationally as revolutionary practice. This excerpt
1: from Marx's Theses on Fearback in 1845 reflects the changing attitudes among the classes altered by the circumstances of education and industrialization. As much as the philosophers were imagining new social, political and economic structures, the newly formed working classes were changing as well and agitating for change of their own. It's in this agitation that we find one of the most significant shifts among the great thinkers of the time. The commonality in their critiques is in many ways obvious. Where their paths diverge is in their beliefs about the future. Turns out, the working class had his own ideas of where the capitalist system would go next. To elucidate the emergence of socialist thought, let's start with the oldest of the theorists who is least associated with socialism, but provides a crucial bridge from some of our founding philosophers, most notably Jeremy Bentham. One of Bentham's associates and mentees was a young John Stuart Mill. As I mentioned, Mill is sometimes excluded from the socialist conversation because he's most associated with utilitarianism. But he's a pure starting point for us because he paid little attention to our other philosophers while landing on very similar ideas. Now, James Mill was relatively poor, but had the good fortune of befriending one of England's most prominent citizens, Jeremy Bentham. Mill himself possessed a keen mind and diligent work ethic, and together with his friend Bentham, they guided Mill's prodigious son, John Stuart, who would take up the mantle from Bentham to become one of Britain's brightest intellectual lights. Born in 1806, John Stuart Mill was treated from an early age to a radical and profound education which included time in France at the age of 14, where he not only became proficient in French, but mesmerized by French culture and politics. The forward-thinking nature of Mill's education included Bentham's utilitarianism and David Ricardo's synthesis of politics and economics. Over time, he would develop his own thoughts on the nature of capitalism and the developing industrial landscape and meld the teachings of his famous mentor and his taskmaster father into his own unique brand of utilitarianism. Mill pushed beyond the limited scope of philosophical morality to extend the concept of utility into all areas of life and governance, from jurisprudence, democracy, workers' rights, and, most notably, women's suffrage. You might have noticed, by the way, that our discussions thus far exclude female philosophers. Now that's deliberate, because the fight for equal rights and suffrage was still in its infancy. As we'll see in the next sections, some of the most fierce advocates for socialism and anarchism were indeed women, who linked workers' rights and suffrage together in a profound way to advance the cause of feminism so many consider Mill to be one of the earliest and most important figures in the feminist movement with one of his most well-known works titled The Subjugation of Women considered a cornerstone in the feminist literary canon. Here's Mill in his own
3: words. The principle which regulates the existing social relations between the two sexes, the legal subordination of one sex to the other, is wrong in itself. And now one of the chief hindrances to human improvement And that it ought to be replaced by a principle of perfect equality, admitting no power or privilege on the one side, nor disability on the other.
1: In his attitude toward women, we see Mill's mind at work with respect to human rights and class distinctions. He would carry this over to the industrial sector when examining the plight of the laborer, giving over their time and labor to a selfish breed of capitalists. Remember that there were already thought experiments and actual experiments, such as New Harmony, that attempted to contrive situations that alleviated the brutal conditions of the workplace by placing control in the hands of the proletariat. So Mill had a frame of reference and ideas to build upon. Rather than the more utopian visions that had been espoused, or the top-down dictatorial concepts of someone like Owen, Mill believed in a more gradual evolution toward worker cooperatives this could take the form of profit-sharing or actual ownership over the means of production, or perhaps both. But he was practical enough to suggest that this would take time and education, and that it was too early in the transition between peasant to industrial worker to assume that any such transformation would be possible in the immediate. So while it's fair and accurate to put Mill in more of the moral philosopher bucket and append him firmly to utilitarianism, it's important not to pigeonhole him. His ability to project the utilitarian ethos into the trials and tribulations of the working class is revolutionary in its own right, and in many ways, he would prove to be prescient in terms of his assessment of the working class ability to revolt against their circumstances. So what we get from Mill is more procedural than doctrinal, a way of looking at the world and making connections between previously disparate philosophies. Now, although Karl Marx was 12 years Mills' junior, they were productive around the same time. And while there's little evidence that Mill studied Marx or even cared about his writing, we know for sure that Marx knew a lot about Mill, but he didn't think much of him. In fact, Marx referred to Mill as shallow. But he wasn't just picking on Mill. This was par for the course with Marx, as we'll soon talk about. Philosophically, Marx and Mill likely share more in common than not. But Marx had a habit of treating contemporaries with disdain, partly out of professional jealousy, and partly because he was pointedly against anyone who suggested that the transition toward economic liberty for the working class could be anything but revolutionary. Now, he would soften this stance toward the end of his life, but most of his writing was electrifying and caustic when it came to the nature of uprisings. Evolution and incrementalism was antithetical to his worldview, and he wasn't shy about criticizing nearly everyone around him. In his early years, when he first connected with his lifetime collaborator Friedrich Engels, Marx routinely felt obscured by those he considered to be lesser minds. So sometimes he would write rather scathing rebukes of others' work in the hopes of drawing them into a scrum and siphoning off their popularity.
2: Wow, Marx was the original influencer.
1: While there's no question that his strategy worked, and he had the brilliance to back up his pomposity, it sometimes worked too well. Time after time, Marx would find himself in exile by both friend and country.
0: Karl Marx grew up in Germany and received a great education, but was unremarkable in school. His family had tried to push him towards studying law, but he chose philosophy instead and thus consigned himself to a life of a squalor. If not for the financial support he received from his friend Engels, Marx may very well be an unknown, especially because my
1: man had a little difficulty holding down a job, and his revolutionary ideals made him a pariah throughout Europe. In fact, because he was prolific, Marx would often find work in journalism, but would constantly run afoul of authority in doing so, and was therefore exiled from cities and entire countries. First, he was kicked out of his home country, so he went to France. Shortly thereafter, the French showed him the door, and he moved to Belgium where he was suspected of arming radicals and was once again kicked out and then kind of snuck back into France. So importantly, we're in the 1840s, and the backdrop to his repeated exiles is really important. It would be a stretch to suggest that Marx's writing to this point, while radical and provocative to be sure, had any demonstrable effect on the world around him in the protests that began to occur all throughout Europe. But it was enough to convince Marx that he was on to something. We'll come back to the political setting in a moment.
2: We rejoined the Marx caravan in 1849 when he was exiled from France once again and took his family to London where he would reside for the remainder of his life.
1: Just the year before this, he penned the Communist Manifesto, the work that would ultimately set him apart from the other scholars of the day, although few recognized it at the time. It's perhaps the lightest of his works in terms of scholarship, but it's endured as a revolutionary handbook that inspires to this day, no matter how wrong his prognostications ultimately were. The intellectual heft we associate with Marx came in the form of most of his other works, with Das Kapital being the most prominent. But throughout his life, Marx was seen as somewhat of an ornery figure. He drank, he smoked, partied, was uncomfortable speaking in public, preferring instead to write terrible things about people that were supposedly his friends. Some posthumous texts about him are seething with bitterness and anger toward the man, calling him tyrannical, doctrinal, and self-absorbed. And there was also a healthy amount of anti-Semitism that we'll get into in part four. Now, others are far more kind, noting that despite the struggles and financial hardships he brought upon them, his family adored him, and he was considered to be quite endearing and private. Regardless of who Marx was as a person, though, the real takeaway here is that his influence in life was shockingly small, considering how he's perceived today. Had subsequent philosophers not split so fiercely in their interpretations of his work, therefore amplifying it during a time when true revolution was sweeping across Eastern Europe, one has to wonder whether we'd even be reading him at all. I think it's absolutely fair to state that if not for Engels' support and dedication to completing, organizing, and preserving his works, Marx may indeed be a footnote. As Louis Manon wrote in The New Yorker, quote, "...apart from his loyal and lifelong collaborator Friedrich Engels, almost no one would have guessed... In 1883, the year Marx died, at the age of 64, how influential he would become. Eleven people showed up for the funeral. For most of his career, Marx was a star in a tiny constellation of radical exiles and failed revolutionaries, and the censors and police spies who monitored them, but almost unknown outside it. The books he's famous for today were not exactly bestsellers. The Communist Manifesto vanished almost as soon as it was published and remained largely out of print for 24 years. Capital was widely ignored when the first volume came out in 1867. After four years, it had sold a thousand copies and it was not translated into English until 1886, end quote. Okay, so let's get back to timing for a moment. Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848 during a time of great upheaval throughout Europe. Germany, Austria, Hungary, France, Italy, Sweden, Belgium, Poland, Denmark, all in dramatic turmoil. Some nations experienced riots, and some were overthrown. It was worker pandemonium all across the continent due to a few factors. There was a financial panic that gripped most of the European economies, as was the norm in the early stages of industrialization. This led to famine in rural areas that had already seen a decrease in population and therefore viable workers in the great urban migration to factories. But the urban areas were rocked with unemployment and thus faring no better. Those who were working were laboring in conditions that were truly the stuff of nightmares. And so discontent set in all over Europe. And smack dab in the middle of all of this, Karl Marx writes the communist motherfucking manifesto. I assume that's the more authentic translation from German. While the book didn't ignite further demonstrations or prove to be true with respect to the grand uprising of the proletariat to overthrow the nations of the world, it would add credibility to Marx's legend. It was a pocket guide to revolution that inspired both admiration and criticism and contributed as much to the splinter in Marxian interpretations as it did to coalesce radicals and revolutionaries around the notion of socialism and or communism. Let's quickly dig into a few key takeaways from Marx's work that we can use as building blocks. Recall from part one that we mentioned that Marx was a student of Hegel and the concept of material influence on the world. Marx's vision of materialism followed that the conditions dictated by the capitalists would alter the very nature of the working class and convert them into a revolutionary mindset. This mindset would forge a bond across nation-states, and worker solidarity would ultimately lead to the proletariat seizing the mechanisms of state power everywhere. This, of course, did not happen, and we'll talk more about that in later sections. Marx was also decidedly wrong when it came to predicting that mechanization of plants and factories would ultimately kill profits. See, his theory was that if labor is what adds value to a commodity, remember we talked about use value and exchange value, then without labor, the value must therefore decline. In reality, the opposite wound up being true, and a century later, economists like Schumpeter would drill into the nature of creative destruction to explain why this is the case. Where Marx was absolutely right was in describing the volatile nature of capitalism and the tendency of bust cycles to rob the working class.
2: He understood the powerful nature of private property in a way that few others could really grasp at the time.
0: He predicted worker discontent and subsequent upheaval as a result.
2: He gave the world a practical understanding of the value of labor, surplus value as something fungible that could just as well belong to the laborer as the capitalist.
0: And gave us the words to describe the fatigue that had already set into the factory worker.
1: In the Communist Manifesto, he declared, Let the ruling classes tremble at a communistic revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. That's pretty profound, right? So in this way, Marx would easily become propagandized over time as a revolutionary rather than the practical philosopher he was. As often happens over time, several generations of writers and activists have attempted to interpret Marx's work in order to craft some sort of overarching ideology. But this is a fool's errand. For as prolific as Marx was, he was loath to put forth a doctrine or what we would consider Marxism. Atheists, for example, have attempted to cling to his work because of his dismissive attitude toward organized religion with statements like, quote, "...Christian socialism is but the holy water with which the priest consecrates the heart-burnings of the aristocrat." End quote. And while he was Jewish, which made him the subject of contempt among many of his contemporaries, he rarely professed any fealty to his religion. To my mind, Marx's strength was in his power of observation— His ability to contextualize the rational and practical sentiments among the working class are the most enduring aspects of his work and place him among the giants of
3: the intellectual class. In countries where modern civilization has become fully developed, a new class of petty bourgeois has been formed, fluctuating between proletariat and bourgeoisie and ever renewing itself as a supplementary part of bourgeois society. The individual members of this class, however, are being constantly hurled down into the proletariat by the action of competition, and as modern industry develops, they even see the moment approaching when they will disappear complete as an independent section of modern society to be replaced in manufactures, agriculture, and commerce by overseers, bailiffs, and shopmen.
1: It's possible that Marxism as an ideology is a construct that has been thrust upon him and not something of his own invention. There exists countless critiques of Marx's vast body of work, with many attempting to craft an ideology out of his observations. The opinions of his work are as diverse as Marx's work itself and offer no more insight into his heart than a rereading of his works would. It's possible that one doesn't exist there's no definitive interpretation, no ideology, and that this is one of the reasons we're still talking about him to this day. His contributions were so rich and abundant and his criticism so scathing, it's difficult to find anyone before and since him that so thoroughly inspired and confounded the masses. The inability to definitively tie Marx to an idea has meant he somehow belongs to all of us and none of us. In the next part... We'll connect Marx specifically to Proudhon and Bakunin, who are in many ways way more important to the events that would transpire between 1870 and 1917. So we'll begin part four by looking at how these two men as contemporaries of Marx and Mill more aptly captured the zeitgeist of the working class and predicted the rupture among the working class that gave rise to the organized labor movement and new ideas about how to organize industrial society. Proudhon and Bakunin will be our bridge to the rise of unions, state socialism, anarchism, and a new breed of social philosophy characterized by figures like Peter Kropotkin, Karl Kautsky, Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, and Leon Trotsky. And an important development in the feminist and anarchist movement with the likes of Emma Goldman. The inflection point of the next period that we'll refer to as the Praxis period begins with the ever-important turning point of 1870. I mean, wait till you get a load of the shit that was going on in this one fucking year. It's amazing. But it also hinges on the Paris Commune in 1871, and I'm really excited for this next section. The peasant and factory uprisings throughout Europe in 1848 definitely planted the seeds of revolution, that inspired Marx and Engels, as well as Proudhon and Bakunin, And these seeds would all come to bear and blossom in 1870 and 1871 in a way that would transform the political and economic world. So for now, here endeth part three.
3: It's the end of the episode Where we used to do show notes
1: Now we just talk through a few things Reflect on what was said Or what we should have done instead Oh, post-show musings Welcome into post-show musings, everybody. Just want to start off with uh, a quick overview of our resources for this. So there's a number of books that we've added in here. Some pertain to different sections, and I'm just sort of keeping a running tab. And they're they're constant go-tos and constant guides. So we've got Revolutionary Russia 1917 by John M. Thompson. We're going to obviously rely on that for the next section. Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy by Joseph Schumpeter. Which we've quoted a lot before And we're going to bring that into probably part 5 Or part 12 or whatever Once we get into the modern era Critique and Praxis by Bernard Harcourt I'm going to talk to you a little bit later About that book and talk about Harcourt In general um, because we actually uh, I think are going to be able To interview the professor But it's taken me a long Time to get through Critique and Praxis And I felt like I really needed to do A lot of this research ahead of time in order to be Properly prepared for that interview Now, we've also got The Bending Cross, a biography of Eugene Debs by Ray Ginger. This book is freaking awesome. I finally finished it. I am absolutely in love with it. We're going to talk a lot about it later, but, you know, that's all I can say about it for now. The Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx, Das Kapital by Karl Marx, a number of his selected readings uh, and writings that we have uh, listed under resources. We have Michael Harrington's Socialism, Past and Future, The Life and Death of Leon Trotsky by Victor Serge and Natalia Sidova Trotsky. And Ethel Rosenberg, An American Tragedy by Anne Seba. There's going to be some other books that we add to the mix as we keep going. Uh, but check out the resource section, too, because we've been adding articles and adding uh, resources from different university resources and a few Marxist organizations that have compiled just a, a, just a huge and enormous compendium of work. Uh, that spawns the age that spans the ages, rather. Um, so, super exciting stuff, and I appreciate everybody's indulgence up into this point ninety nine. What's happening?
2: If someone ever wrote a book about me and the subhead was "an American trashy," <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, she was murdered by okay. the state. So that's not that fair. I get, then you know, okay, yeah, defending her husband. Yeah.
2: <sighs> Men are not worth it.
1: She thought so. <laughs> she thought so. I'm not sure if he really did enough to save her.
2: Why can't she be an American hero? Sounds like she died doing something heroic, sort of, maybe. I think the
1: implication there was it was a tragedy because she was truly a hero.
2: It's all about branding.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. I'm going to
2: speak with her publicist.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Get on it. Okay. It probably worked for Haymarket. It's fine. Sure. Okay.
2: I didn't know Marx was Jewish. For real? Yeah. Okay. Pop off King.
1: Uh, in part four, you're really gonna know.
2: Oh no! Yeah,
1: there's a lot of anti-Semitism that begins to creep into Shocking. the critiques. Well, what's so fucked up about it is that you're you're talking about we're, we're going to see the rise of like real of true feminism, and th- so many of the of the great thinkers in anarchism were these incredible feminist uh, leaders, and some of them were Jewish and so they're they're all sort of tied together and connected and then you have this bridge of these other philosophers that are extremely well I I'll say more critical in private of Judaism and very critical of Marx and then kind of you know putting the two together saying well well no wonder wink wink nudge nudge but then also advocating for things that were were led by very prominent and very out there Jewish figures so, And I hate to paint this with with one brush, but believe it or not, a lot of the anti-Semitism comes from more of the French side of of the aisle. I mean,
2: the stereotype exists for a reason, I presume. We didn't just that the French are
1: just incredibly anti-Semitic.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm assuming at some point they probably were.
1: Yeah, and I'm not letting the French off the hook, but I, I also feel like they hate everybody. They're just so dismissive of anybody mm. that isn't French, but also uh, very anti-Semitic, and it's bad.
2: I bad. am excited for this next chapter: feminists, Jewish women who hate the government,
1: anarchists. I mean, it's, yeah, it's pretty fucking cool.
2: Those are my four four <laughs> mothers.
1: <laughs> I love it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then they really take control of the conversation when we come back to America, actually, which mm. is kind of neat. Um,
2: Is this counted in feminism waves or is this pre-waves?
1: So I'm finding a lot of the great feminist leaders were anarchists in Europe. What happened in the United States is, not as much on the anarchism side, but a lot of the feminist leaders did sort of move into the socialist movement, which then became uh, vigorously in favor of universal suffrage. So, and those two things coming together, I think was extremely important in the development of socialism. What's ultimately gonna be really fascinating, I think the thing that I didn't understand, and and I'm trying to kind of get my mind around, is the fracture among the working class and the role, the very vital role, ironically, that unions played in crushing the socialist movement, specifically in the United States. So I'm excited to kind of get to that because you see a situation where you really begin to understand Marx's materialism and how the world of wage labor influenced the working class over generations in such a way that the the very idea of taking control of the mechanisms of of power and production became such a foreign and remote concept. And that's why it became so theoretical. But unions developed most of the strength during the depression because it was seen as a way to kind of gather the masses to say, okay, this didn't work out, whatever the fuck this was, this is going on for way too long. We can't wait and be patient. The unions gain a lot of steam at the very moment that one would assume that the socialist movement would unite with the working class and the the union membership, they actually splintered and wound up working against each other in pretty terrible ways in some parts. And so the American experience of socialism changed dramatically during that period because of the imperial influences of the Woodrow administration, what was happening here with a much more developed labor uh, union representation than in other parts of the world. And uh, amazingly, Socialism, what we would now know as social democracy, not democratic socialism, was able to flourish and spread way more naturally in the European countries than, than it ever did here. Because I think that, you know, sort of the American mindset and the way we see ourselves and the fact that we became so important on the world economic stage so fast... Um, And we became sort of like the seat of industrialization and production. It's fascinating, fascinating shit.
2: So what I'm hearing is we should finish this series, move swiftly into the history of labor movement further than we ever did. And then talk about uh, sweatshops and unfuck that. And then also during that, talk about the rise of women in the workplace going in during the wars and all that. And then do 1,700 episodes on feminism. Is that what I'm picking up? It's
1: pretty much what we have mapped out. That's pretty much where we're headed. Nice. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, future's female. That's what's
2: up. Wow, thank you. That's
1: what's what. That's what's up. The
2: past was female. Not really. What do you mean?
1: I think we can take full responsibility
2: for fucking things up and getting it to where we are. We kept it all running.
1: Just so we could stay at war and keep dying. I see. I see where you were going with that.
2: Interesting. Hmm.
1: How diabolical. Yeah, 99. but then we all died
2: in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire.
1: <laughs> also true. <laughs> terrible. It's so, it's, you
2: left. <laughs> it's
1: all just, it's all so terrible. Terrible, can, terrible.
2: Can I tell you one of the funniest things that ever happened to me working here? That someone we worked with um, that you know well said something about hmm. how they were on the board of the... Families who were victims of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, and you were, <laughs> you were like, really? Yeah,
1: I don't remember that at all.
2: And maybe they weren't on the board. Maybe they were just working with them for you know some weird fucking side quest. Okay, but you were like, we were like in a meeting, and you were like they're still alive
1: (laughs) that doesn't even it still doesn't make sense the funniest
2: thing i've ever i've i just honestly sometimes i laugh about it to myself because it was just like of course she was of course she found like the two living members who like consider themselves victims i mean Um, it's a tragedy but
1: oh speaking of that so speaking of tragedy speaking of people you wouldn't assume are still alive from a tragic event did you see that remember in our economics of racism episode we covered the burning of black wall street
2: mm-hmm.
1: oh my god why is it why am it escaping me
2: it's literally what it's called
1: yeah yeah but it uh referred to uh, uh, tulsa right uh, the, the, the riots in tulsa the burning of black wall street uh there were apparently four people still alive they were all past 100 that yeah, didn't
2: that woman testify? We played a clip.
1: She's still alive. Amazing. I think her name
2: was Virginia. I think
1: you may be right.
2: Sorry. Apparently, there's three others. Wow.
1: They were all made it past 100, and they were all vying for uh, reparations from that event, and the courts just struck it down. I
2: saw that. Yeah. I saw that. Some it's coda to up. that
1: episode, huh? And I imagine the court rationale just. From a surface level of understanding, how shitty our court system is, they just didn't want to uh, uh, establish a precedent. Uh huh. Yeah. So.
2: Give it to the. They're good. They're a hundred. Let them have the money.
1: Yeah.
2: Can I tell you about other survivors and marketing? Yeah. I keep getting these these ads on on Instagram, and they say feed a Holocaust survivor. That's how they phrase it, and it's like a photo of an old woman. And I want to say, why we got to do this? Wow. What, are they going to mail me a nickel next and say, like, this could be used for that? Wow. Feed a Holocaust survivor. Don't they have any better taglines? It makes me uncomfortable. Did you do it? No.
1: So you let the Holocaust survivor starve?
2: She looked well That's fed. That's on you, man. She looked well fed. <laughs> That's
1: on you. Come on.
2: Well, they're trying Imagine to guilt me. She
1: made it through the Holocaust, but you killed I her eventually by not feeding her? I not have
2: to reparations these people. The Germans should.
1: Oh, not, so now you're claiming birthright, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: These people are actually my people. These people. These people. <laughs> Polish, Russian Jews. Those are my people. German Jews.
1: Did I to tell you the, um, uh, I think I've revealed that I worked for many years with a, a Holocaust center. We just actually mentioned that uh, maybe in show notes, right? We did. And um, w- one of the... the I don't think he was a do- was well, He was a survivor. I'm not sure if he was a docent, but he lectured all over the country. And um, he was a very, very funny dude. He recently passed away, which was awful because he was so sweet.
2: It's only awful when sweet people die. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. And when he was giving a, a, a lecture to actually... We had brought our, our team in when we were back in the news business and, and we went in for some training. He lifted up his shirt sleeve and pointed to his numbers and says... Every year, I plays them in the lottery. Oh, my God. And I've never won. Never won. So unlucky. So unlucky is these numbers. Oh,
2: my God.
1: We just about fell out of our chair because he was such a great speaker. He brought you to, like, the brink. And then it was, like, this grand reveal to show you the numbers. Like, this is real. This is fucking, like, look at these fucking numbers on my arm. And then when he said he played them in the lottery, we are like... Did this just happen? Mm-hmm. He was amazing. He Speaking was so of,
2: great. One, la- one last story. Did you see, did we talk about this, what Eric Adams did?
1: Oh, my goodness. Did you see it? Do you yes, know what I'm talking about? the photo, and he fucking made
2: it. Wait, the, we might be talking about different things. The photo
1: in his wallet of the slain police officer. Oh, that that's they, not
2: what I'm talking about.
1: Oh, what are you talking you about? You go
2: first, and then I'll go.
1: No, you. <laughs> this should
2: be a new segment. What did Eric Adams do <laughs> this week?
1: He claimed... Many, many times in multiple press conferences when he defends the police, because that's where he comes from, that he keeps a photograph of a slain officer in his wallet.
2: Okay. And...
1: Well, a Times reporter was finally like, hey, man, can we see it? And he was like, I'll be right back with you. And at the next press conference, pulled it out, and it was a very weathered photograph. Okay. Okay. And, like, laminated, like, stuck in a wallet, whatever it is, but it looked very old. Well, it turns out his staff, because he was lying... Right. Googled the slain officer, took the picture, printed it out on photo paper, cut it out, poured coffee on it... Of course. Wrinkled so they, it all they up. Did
2: burn it a little bit? That's right. <laughs> and it? made it
1: look weathered and aged and then gave it to him and put it in his wallet. And he produced it to the times like oh, there you go see told you it was true so there wasn't my wallet just didn't have my wallet on me last time right and then some staff member leaked it and was like yes. yeah we fucking did that that this guy's full of shit good for them now you go
2: okay so he was doing a town hall and this woman comes up and is like you allowed the rent board to approve like a six percent increase on rent stabilized Uh, housing like this is really bad for people he was like I have nothing to do with the rent board and she's like you appointed them so essentially (laughs) you uh, you created them she was like yelling at him and like pointing at him with her finger she's an older woman he goes he's like don't talk to me like you're on your plantation and I'm your slave, you know, I'm the mayor, I deserve some respect. and I'm paraphrasing, but it's it was very like along these lines. Oh I, trying to make this woman seem like a Karen. Yeah. When she really she's 87, huh. she's been fighting for tenant rights for like 40 years, and she's a Holocaust survivor. Oh my her god. parents fled with her when she was a baby. Oh my god. And like they <laughs> fled the Holocaust. And they moved here when they were like, uh, when she was like seven or eight. So she's been here fucking fighting, doing work, and been fighting for this shit for God knows how long. And he here he comes and tries to make her seem like she's just a white woman hating a black man, which mm. there are plenty of people who do that. Of course, But also don't invoke plantations to this, like for someone, it's a town hall. Your constituents are gonna yell at you. They're gonna say things <laughs> and they don't, you don't deserve respect all the time. People Good need to Lord. speak to you sternly, yeah. So that was
1: This Week in Eric
2: Adams News. (laughs) Tom, (laughs) can you write something for us?
1: Oh, Tom's too big for us now.
2: I know. It's all right,
1: though. I'm happy for him.
2: Yeah. Uh, As always,
1: I wrote it this time. UNFTR is edited and arranged by sound design maestro, Manny Faces. It's produced by the great and powerful Comrade 99. Da. Da. All original music is produced and performed by the great Tom McGovern. Visit TomMagovern.com to follow his work. And don't forget, please, to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com/slash at UNFTR. I'm your host, Max. UNFTR is supported by memberships and the purchase of our unfucking brand of coffee, manufactured and distributed by our partners at Native Coffee Traders. You can support our work and indigenous entrepreneurship by purchasing our coffee and all of the information you need about this or anything related to our show can be found at UNFTR.com because 99's the fucking goat. I am a goat. Peace out.
2: Uh, Oh wait, those are sheep. No, those are goats. That's close. I'm confused.
1: In fact, because he was prolific, Mark would often. Who's Mark?
2: But in this, our filof- our philosophers. <laughs> Jewish food.